Well, good morning. Welcome to St. Paul's Blur Street. Uh, whether you're joining us online or in person, uh, we're so glad that you could join us this uh, second Sunday in the season of Advent, that great season of waiting for an arrival, an arrival that we know is actually a sure thing, unlike Shohei Otani. Welcome. One of the great business classics is the book by American writer Jim Collins, From Good to Great, Why Some Companies Make the Leap and Others Don't. What makes a company good? What makes a person great? Are there even such categories in the first place? As the advent clock is ticking in anticipation of an impending arrival, we heard uh, Winville read this morning about a man that Jesus called the greatest person who ever lived, John the Baptist. I tell you, said Jesus, among those born of women, none is greater than John. That's quite the endorsement. Like, imagine what a flex it would be to give Jesus as your reference on a resume. John the Baptist was an amazingly popular figure when he burst onto the scene in about the year AD 29 or AD 30. And while he was a major celebrity, would I invite him to dinner? God, no. Goodness knows what he would say, sitting at my well-appointed table in his skins, licking honey off my silver forks. But I need John, so do you. Because John was one of the world's greatest truth-tellers which does not normally equal popularity, right? Truth-tellers force us to look in the mirror and see what we would rather not or have chosen to disregard. And while it was obviously Hebrew hyperbole, we're told that everyone in the whole city of Jerusalem had gone out into the wilderness to listen to this wild man and be baptized by him. People clearly wanted to buy the truth that John was selling. So two weeks away from Christmas, whether you're curious or critical about faith or already committed, let's see how John tells us the truth about one, who Jesus is, two, where to find him, and then three, how he brings new life, who, where, and how. But just a little bit of historical context first. Uh, for people living in Israel at the time, uh, things were pretty bad, right? They were under Roman occupation. The Romans had never been touchy-feely conquerors. Uh, the people had heard stories of how God had moved in the past, right? Like how God had spoken to Moses in the burning bush, how God had parted the Red Sea to rescue them from slavery in Egypt, how God had even spoken to them at Mount Sinai, giving them a way to live. But that was then. This was now. God hadn't spoken to his people in centuries. No miracles in recent memory. No fiery prophets had been sent to remind them that uh, even the future was in God's hands. I think we know what that feels like. You never quite stop believing in God, or you really want to believe, but you don't actually see God active in the present, right? You might talk about God, but it's more like a memory or something your grandmother knew about, rather than something actually happening in your life. You might even believe the future promises of what God's going to do, but it's not gonna happen in your lifetime, come on. It's into that context 
that the early Christian writer Mark writes that electric opening line of the biography of Jesus, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which sounds to me a lot like the opening lines of the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God's on the move. Something big is about to happen, something new, writes Mark. And to then visually make the point, John the Baptist emerges from the desert dressed the part as a fiery prophet of old, baptizing people left, right, and center in the River Jordan for the forgiveness of their sins. Now, baptism, it was not invented by John. Uh, it wasn't unique to the Israelites. From ancient times, baptism was a, a well-known symbol of spiritual rebirth right, of leaving an old life behind and starting afresh. And this is what made John so popular. As we looked at last week, the world's not okay. You and I are not okay. And honesty about sin and the hope for a fresh start was just as appealing 2,000 years ago as it is today. So into that context, John the Baptist came as one of history's great truth-tellers. And first of all, John shines the truth on the light of who Jesus is. Right out of the gate, Mark tells us that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Son of God. And John tells us that he's come to prepare the way for someone who is far greater than he is who's not just going to use water for baptism, but is actually going to use God's Holy Spirit. Wow, bold stuff. And you see, in the first decade after the death and resurrection of Jesus, all the stories about him, those were shared verbally, orally, by the people who'd been with him. And that eliminated any of the made-up stories, right? Because all the eyewitnesses were still around to fact-check. So like if somebody said, then I saw Jesus jump off the temple and fly around the city of Jerusalem. No, he didn't. I was there. He didn't fly. But as the first generation of eyewitnesses began to die off, they realized they needed to get it all down on papyrus so that we could have the real Jesus, with the Gospel of Mark being widely regarded as the first eyewitness biography to be written down. We need the real Jesus, not a made-up one, because a Jesus of our own making or of our culture's own making is more often than not, it's just a reflection of my biases, right? Like a fraction of your prejudices. Where do you think white supremacist Jesus came from? Where do you think Jesus meek and mild comes from? Not the Bible. And a Jesus of our, own, of our own making can't change us because that Jesus can't contradict us, can't challenge us. Now, if there is nothing in your life that you want to have change, if you think everything is just perfect in our city, then your Jesus is probably going to work for you. But if you think the world is not okay, then we need the truth that the Baptist was selling. We need the incarnation the truth that in Jesus of Nazareth, we see the fullness of God. We see the transcendent becoming imminent. We see the invisible becoming visible. 
We're going to see God weep in pain. We're going to see God be angry at injustice. God's going to eat breakfast at the beach. God's going to be cast down. God's going to be raised up. God's going to defeat death. And if Jesus is God in the flesh, then we can have an infinitely more personal encounter with God than any religion or any philosophy could ever give you. Now, if you're uh, spiritually searching, you've got questions, you might be thinking that contemporary people, educated people uh, could, could wrap their heads around uh, Jesus being a great ethical teacher or having some kind of God consciousness, but that such people will balk at the idea that Jesus could be God like in the flesh. So it's important to remember that those very first uh, listeners, those very first people who heard John the Baptist's message, uh, the Jewish people of Jerusalem, they would have had just as many intellectual barriers to believing that God could come to earth as a human uh, as we might. God was transcendent. God's name was so holy you couldn't even say it out loud. Right? That's a view Orthodox Jews hold to, to, to this day. Jewish culture trained people to believe that God could never become a human being. Like, that's an insult to God. And our culture? Our culture trains us to believe that the laws of nature cannot be broken, not even broken by the person who created them in the first place. But something broke through those intellectual barriers for those first Jewish believers. Jesus was able to convince his first followers, not only by his life, but obviously by his incredible resurrection, that he was not just a prophet telling them how to find God. No, he was God who had come to find us. That's a huge difference. The truth about who Jesus is, God come to find us. A second truth that uh, John points us to is where Jesus finds us, where. We heard how John uh, appeared in the wilderness, right, outside of the capital city. It's a great word, wilderness, uh, but I think it's better translated as desert, a place that cannot sustain life, no bread, no water, piercing loneliness, and uh, the people had to come out of the safety and relative comfort of Jerusalem to actually hear John. And meeting God in the desert is a theme throughout uh, the Bible. Right? Abraham, Jacob, Moses, they were all met by God in the desert. Because it's in the desert, as everything else is stripped away, that we realize we're totally reliant on God, that we will not survive without God. And that's a truth that the creature comforts of modern life do a fabulously effective job of covering up that truth. Like, who needs God when you can have pet insurance, mortgage insurance, car insurance, and life insurance? The reality of the lives that we create for ourselves in this city is we won't turn to God, usually, until our lives become a desert. When the things or people we've turned to be our hope and encouragement in this world, it's usually our relationships, might be your career if you really like your job, but only when those wells have run dry or when the bread we've baked for ourselves has turned moldy, that's when we usually meet God in the wilderness. 
And it seems to me that what John is telling us by doing his thing out in the desert is that if we really want to be found by Jesus to meet the incarnate Son of God, we need to have either come to the end of our own resources, like you've tried, it's not working for you, or you've acknowledged your own limitations, right? You've acknowledged your sinfulness, our desperate need for rescue from ourselves and rescue from each other. Like, I need rescuing from you, and you need rescuing from me. And one of the remarkable things about Jesus is that while he claimed to be the Son of God, the King of Earth, the King of Heaven, is that he didn't come to sit on a throne. He sat on the complete opposite of a throne. He sat on a cross. And a throne is power and prestige, right? A cross, humiliation, hopelessness. And Jesus was willing to be completely cut off from God as he died on the cross, like utterly humiliated. He went into the ultimate wilderness, the ultimate desert, so that when we go into ours, God will meet us there. God knows what it's like. This means there is nothing you could have ever done, no mess you've made of your life, no mess you've made of your kids, no lack of faith, no doubts that you have about God or any of this stuff, nothing that means God won't pursue you, that God doesn't want to find you, find you today. God will even become an adorable baby to make it super easy for you to pick him up. Lastly, the Baptist shows us how Jesus brings new life. It's not about me, said no celebrity ever, except John the Baptist. He preached about someone else, someone whose sandals he didn't even consider himself worthy to untie. And the new life that Jesus brings, the great gift of Christmas, it starts with the fantastic news that life is not all about you. In fact, thinking life is all about us, right? Like making all our financial decisions based on what's best for us, or thinking our lives are the most important, it is a surefire path to misery, let me tell you. It's the definition of practical and spiritual bondage. Trying to grasp here and there a little bit of respect, maybe some security or love in this pretty heartless world. Needing everything to be about us or somehow our uniquely talented children or about our anxieties, about not getting all the things we think we deserve in this life. That's spiritual bondage because it's living in opposition to God and to your neighbor. Who told you it's all about you? The devil, that's who, to make you miserable. Life's not about me. If it were, what could I do? How can I heal my own past? How can I redeem my own faults and betrayals in the present? I can't. How, how can I possibly secure my future and the future of the people I love? I can't. No, thank God it's not about me. It's about the one we're all waiting for, Jesus, who brings new life. How? By lifting my eyes off of myself and onto him, because he's the only one 
who has any authority and power to heal my personal history, to redeem my faults, and give me hope for the future. Jesus brings new life at Christmas by being so beautiful that my narcissistic focus on my own ambitions and troubles begins to lose its choking grip on me. Jesus brings new life at Christmas by coming to find us in the desert of our own making, by gifting us the love and the security and the hope we spend our lives grasping for. At Christmas, Jesus comes to free us from the obsession we have with ourselves, to renew us with God's Holy Spirit, not just water. New life born in Bethlehem, so new life can be born in us. The beginning of the good news, not of Jenny Anderson. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Advent clock is ticking. Thanks be to God. Amen.